Jackman Show. I'm Jen Pan here with my friend and your co-host Ariella Thornhill. Ariella, what's new? It's good to be back on the show. I feel like I've missed a couple things. I'm slowly getting restarted after maternity leave. In fairness to you, we were all off last week, so we're all, I think, kind <laughs> that of shows you how much I'm focused on. <laughs> but anyway, in any event, what's good going to on. see you. Yeah, it's great to see you too. Right before the holiday season. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a good show today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Megan Day, who, of course, is an editor and a writer over at Jacobin. Uh, she's been covering the opioid crisis, uh, which at this point is basically now a fentanyl crisis. Uh, and that's kind of going to be our topic for the show today. Um, Ariella, I know that you have been looking or kind of following the opioid crisis and the fentanyl crisis um, for a while. I know that you really love uh, Sam uh, what is it? Sam Quinones. Quinones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a journalist who wrote Dreamland. Um, and I think he's been more recently covering the sort of spike in fentanyl deaths as well. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, earlier this week, very grim news that the U.S. has now passed, uh, I believe, 100,000 drug overdose deaths. Most of that is driven by fentanyl. So a real crisis. Yeah, absolutely. It's reached a point where I think we saw municipalities struggling to keep up with the amount of deaths, the amount of care that people needed. And it's a fiscal and a social issue. And now it's just compounded to a degree that is, you know, not only incredibly costly, but incredibly scarring Mm -hmm. for communities. You know, I think there's a statistic that one in three people know somebody who is addicted to opioids and we're going to have communities with, you know, holes, Mm-hmm. over and over and over again, um, because these drugs are so um, widely pro- proliferated and they're now in pretty much every drug you can buy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the opioid crisis, opioid slash fentanyl crisis is also extremely widespread. I mean, you know, I think that the stereotype is that it's kind of like a Rust Belt thing or, you know, like West Virginia thing specifically. Mm-hmm. And obviously those are areas of extreme crisis. Um, but you know, it, uh, in Megan's reporting, she covers cases in, uh, you know, Providence, Rhode Island uh, and Texas. And I mean, Ariella, you're from Maine. I don't know. Is is Yeah, it, it's it's pretty bad in Maine as well. I mean, yeah. I saw like meth was kind of a precursor to the crisis that we're having now. But there are a lot of differences in the political economy of these drugs. So mm-hmm. with the meth crisis, you had local kind of people creating batches, small batches and selling them to other people pretty close to them. You didn't see the kind of like mass produced drugs that are being made, you know, using the global chemical market and then you know, like scattered across the United States with dozens of different middlemen. Mm -hmm. And so like you said, being put into everything. Yeah. And everything because you know, the market logic is that fentanyl is super addictive. Mm-hmm. And if you put it in other drugs, you create a repeat customer. Mm-hmm. And this is not distinct from, you know, Philip Morris doing this or right. food companies putting tons of sugars or fats or salts into food in ways mm-hmm. that with a normal person just couldn't technically do. Right. So there's a, a, a personal logic of, you know, thinking about these things as choices But the market is really 
oriented towards like extreme research and dominance. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing with the fentanyl crisis. And we see it in other aspects of American capitalism. Yeah. When we were uh, thinking about putting together this show, I was like thinking about what I could do a segment on. And the first thing that came to mind was conspiracy theories, because in my mind, the opioid crisis and particularly the involvement of the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma is basically a real life conspiracy. Right. I mean, like it's almost it's almost a cartoon in how villainous they were uh, Mm -hmm. and, and what a heavy hand that basically this one company and this one family had in uh, fueling the opioid crisis. And to me, the kind of hallmark of the uh, conspiracy, so to speak, is when Purdue Pharma tried to patent a drug to treat opioid addiction. Like, do you remember yeah. that? This happened like a vertical years integration. Ago. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's just like <laughs> capture every corner of the market. Um, but all that said, you know, something that we were talking about earlier is whether the focus on the Sacklers and whether the focus on Purdue Pharma, even though they are probably more culpable than any one entity in the in the entire U.S., like how helpful is it really, you know? Yeah, I think we've come to a point where... Um... People are really shocked by the level of power they had over Mm -hmm. pretty much every American institution that's supposed to safeguard other people. Um, And obviously they exploited that. But the more that I've read, the more it seems clear to me that they used a pretty routine playbook, to be honest. You know, you see that you see the same thing over and over and over again. And you see it across different industries. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is like capitalists will kill you. They don't really care if you die. Right. Exactly. Because they're not looking at a ledger of like human life and potential. They're looking at money. And I remember on a different show, uh, Nando said something that I really liked. He was like, the Sacklers are obviously evil, but if they had never existed, somebody else just would have come along mm-hmm. and done the same thing. And I think that's totally true. That's true. Yeah. Because yeah. the market for prescription drugs in America is the best and most lucrative in the world. The, mm-hmm. This is the place that you want to be selling these things. <laughs> right, it's yeah. extremely permissive. It's easy for people to exploit so many of the power dynamics that are tilted towards the rich and towards the capitalist class. And that's what they do every mm-hmm. single time. Mm-hmm. They do it with food. They do it with, you know, shelter. You, BlackRock, I think, is like the largest private renter or right. private owner uh, for people to rent from. We're going to see a kind of variation on this, um, creating a monopoly by carving mm-hmm. out a market space and then absolutely crushing people within that. Right. So I know that you have a segment on kind of, again, the larger economy of the opioid crisis and specifically how the healthcare industry uh, is like tentacles deep in the whole thing. Um, Before you get to that, um, I think maybe I'll just go off on conspiracy theories for a little bit um, and we can kind of tie these things together. Your your segment relates more to what Megan is going to be talking about um, and she'll be on after that. So I figure that'll be like a good segue into, into mm-hmm. Megan's talk. Um, but also, but- you know, Jen, I think you're right that it's, you know, it's really, really hard to talk about conspiracism in America. Conspiracism mm-hmm. as a kind of more of a, a kind of metaphysical outlook, right. Than like a rigorous, like, I don't know, individually driven kind of research focus, right? There is a, there's a thing in America where people just fundamentally can't trust the institutions they're in. And it creates 
this irrationality that is, you know, filled up with conspiracism. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, I mean, you need faith in something making sense. You got to right. find some way to make it make sense. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely, you know, one of the things that I want to touch on in more detail, like, like, how can you really blame anybody, regardless of their position on the political spectrum for believing in a conspiracy theory when we literally have, I mean, when we literally know what Purdue Pharma yeah. did, you know? <laughs> yeah, just one example. Just, just one just example, one example of many. So many examples. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah but, you know, that right. said, that said, like, I think one of the things that I also want to, you know, sort of piece piece through or like look at is conspiracy theories, they are still dangerous and counterproductive, even if mm -hmm. we can understand where they come from, right? Even if they're just demobilizing people, right? Even if they're not mobilizing them towards other dangerous, unproductive things, even if it's mm -hmm. just demobilizing people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like instead of blaming your landlord for being a terrible person and making you live in squalor, right? you are blaming some cabal of like bankers the lizard and, Illuminati. So and so forth. Yeah. yeah, the lizard people. Like, you know, just in that way, right. in the, its most mild regard, conspiracism mm -hmm. can be demobilizing and pull people away from like collective action that could actually mm -hmm. make a difference. Right. It's uh, it's it's just classic misdirection in many senses. I mean, that's why, you know, anti-Semitism is often referred to as the socialism of fools, because it's like there mm -hmm. is... There is a small group of people that are exploiting everybody, but it's not who you think. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um, let's dive in. Yeah. All right. So, conspiracy theories. There's no denying it. Americans love a conspiracy theory. The most popular conspiracy theories, of course, tend to skew right-wing in nature. In the 21st century, for instance, right-wing conspiracists have claimed that the Democratic Party officials and the artist Marina Abramovich have been operating a child sex ring out of the basement of Comet Pizza, that the Sandy Hook shooting was a false flag operation carried out by the government as a pretext to seize everyone's guns, that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump, but also that Trump would miraculously be reinstated during March of the following year. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the old standby that Jews and or the lizard Illuminati are controlling the world. But particularly since the Trump era, liberals and the left have also been vulnerable to exaggerations and falsehoods, if not outright conspiracy theories that fit neatly into preconceived notions about power, history, and justice in America. Let's take a closer look at why a few of these took off. You might remember that last year, a whistleblower alleged that an ICE detention camp in Georgia was performing mass hysterectomies on immigrant detainees. Here's how HuffPost covered the issue. We are not going to allow this to happen, not on our watch. I will tell you, when elected, the first thing I'm going to do, one of the first things, is to shut down these private detention facilities. Right. Just shut them down. By the way, the Biden-Harris administration has definitely not shut down private detention centers, but that's another discussion for another day. In any case, when these allegations of mass hysterectomies came out, they seemed to fall right in line with Trump's spiteful immigration policies and, of course, the nation's brutal history of forced sterilization. As a result, the liberal media instantly exploded with horror, with many commentators, of course, drawing comparisons to Nazi Germany. Yet, the claim of mass hysterectomies was never actually substantiated, and the whistleblower herself later came under scrutiny for mistreatment of the people being detained in the facility. Further investigations revealed that something far less sensational 
but perhaps no less shameful, took place at the ICE detention center. According to the New York Times, a number of women had received unnecessary surgeries for small or benign cysts from Dr. Mahendra Amin, a gynecologist employed by the facility. Dr. Amin had been charged in the past with ordering similar unnecessary surgeries in order to bill Medicaid at higher rates. His overly aggressive diagnoses at the ICE facility fit exactly the same pattern. As the New York Times reported, Independent doctors that provide treatment for ICE detainees are paid, are paid for the procedures they perform with Department of Homeland Security funds. Procedures like the one that Dr. Amin performed are normally billed at thousands of dollars each. In other words, in this particular case, there was probably no evil Nazi conspiracy to deliberately sterilize immigrants in order to purify America. Instead, it was something far more banal, an unscrupulous doctor trying to make money at the expense of a group of people deemed disposable by the state. A similar kind of cash grab shaped yet another scandal last year that initially looked like a much more sensational and much more sinister plot than it really was. On the eve of the 2020 election, Democrats began speculating that USPS Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, who was, after all, a Trump donor, was attempting to sabotage the Postal Service in order to undermine mail-in voting and throw the election to Trump. Now, recall that upon assuming control of the USPS, DeJoy instituted a number of cost-cutting measures that jammed up the postal system and slowed down mail delivery, including paring back postal workers' overtime and reducing post office hours. By August of 2020, mail delays had become so widespread that on social media, photographs of what appeared to be graveyards of USPS collection boxes and rumors that DeJoy was removing mailboxes to prevent people from mailing in their ballots began to go viral. This is happening right before our eyes. They are sabotaging USPS to sabotage vote by mail, one activist wrote in a viral tweet. Rachel Maddow, of course, also raised the alarm. I mean, them getting rid of the sorting machines at postal facilities and then the mailboxes from your local street corner. This is something they made no announcement about. They made no public announcement that they were going to do this. We had to have it it told to us by postal workers and by people who observed the trucks going around picking up the mailboxes. I guess they thought they wouldn't ever have to answer for this stuff. But this is a fight against a thing that Americans actually and quite broadly love and respect and don't want to go away. This is the kind of fight that most Americans have a side they want to be on. And it is not the side that is stealing the mailboxes and telling us that, "Mm, yeah, doesn't think you don't think it's going to work out for you to get your ballot in on time. However, As reports later revealed, the USPS boxes in the viral photographs had not been seized for the purpose of rigging an election. Rather, they had been out of commission for years and were undergoing refurbishing. So like the specter of ICE undertaking mass hysterectomies, for many people, the idea of a government official engaging in a ploy to prevent citizens from casting ballots seemed entirely within the realm of possibility. After all, the United States does have a long history of disenfranchising segments of the population through tactics like polling station closures and voter ID laws, not to mention more overt Jim Crow era measures like literacy tests. However, DeJoy's restructuring of the Postal Service likely had more to do with money than with outright voter suppression. As our very own Paul Prescott wrote last year, DeJoy's overhaul of the postal system was essentially another iteration of a familiar right-wing strategy, degrade the quality of a service, 
turn the public against it, and then privatize. So that, in the end, isn't quite the mailbox-destroying conspiracy that liberals had feared prior to the election. But what's troubling is that while privatization may be far less sensational than a conspiracy to rig an election for Trump, it's also far more widespread. The unfortunate aspect of the tendency toward conspiracism in these cases and others is that these overly sensational claims can often generate a kind of inadvertent numbness toward more mundane forms of violation or corruption. For instance, ICE obviously doesn't have to participate in a mass campaign of forced sterilization to be a violent and dehumanizing institution. Yet, as reporter Felipe de la Haz pointed out last year, very few of ICE's more frequent abuses, such as packing detainees into close quarters during COVID or refusing people routine care or letting detainees suffer from malnutrition, attracted the same attention as the one largely spurious charge that a doctor was collecting uteruses. Likewise, even if Louis DeJoy isn't personally going around and blowing up mailboxes, his efforts to downsize or eventually privatize the USPS is an attack on an important public institution that's been a bulwark of the American middle class for decades. All of this means that when we constantly try to invoke states of emergency in order to respond to injustice, even when that injustice is real, we run the risk of sliding into the same type of conspiracism that we frequently criticize the right for indulging in. And the larger problem, of course, is this. At the end of the day, people all across the political spectrum end up susceptible to outlandish ideas, not because they're particularly dumb or ill-intentioned, although of course that is sometimes the case, but more often than not, it's just because they are living in times of enormous social and economic instability, political discord, and of course, real-life government cover-ups. Public trust in both the federal government and the media is now at a record low, and the ongoing collapse of local newspapers is further exacerbating political polarization. In other words, the problem that runs even deeper than conspiracy theories per se is that the same economic structures that encourage the pursuit of profit at the expense of the public good will continue to compound the social unrest that leads to yet more paranoia. A few years ago, two political scientists researching conspiracism in America wrote, conspiracy theories are for losers. They meant literal losers, people who have lost elections and culture wars, but also jobs, homes, and economic prospects. Without a serious political and economic realignment in the next few years, that group will only include more and more of us. Oh, Arielle, you're sorry. I was muted. I was not prepared. That was a conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm being silent. Yeah, I was not prepared for those clips because I didn't see them before your segment. But I do think you're right. There is this, um, I don't know, it's not exactly compassion fatigue, but there's a way in which it creates something that's outlandish and horrifying. And then the kind of run of the mill stuff gets lost in the weeds. Mm -hmm. I mean, ice is just outlandish and horrifying. Like you don't have to change any of their normal legal practices for it to be horrifying. Mm -hmm. And yet like there's a way in which it, it really distracts from the core issues when these more sensational stories start to flutter around. 
I was also thinking about, I, you know, when the Afghanistan papers came out, which was pretty recently, uh, nobody really cared. <laughs> I mean, in a way, yeah. it, it was like, you know, this bombshell information. Uh, but at the same time, I, I feel like it didn't really make headlines. There were certainly no, you know, protests or calls to like oust the government or anything like that. And I wondered if part of the reason might be that, uh, like you were saying, a certain type of fatigue where, you know, especially with regard to the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war, Mm -hmm. like the American public, I feel by and large, doesn't think it can do anything about any of those things, you know? So, I mean, again, with the Iraq war, um, we now have evidence that there were no weapons of mass destruction. The Bush administration flat out lied to us um, and we can't do anything about it, you know? So uh, again, I think that this is to say that when there is real, when there is no real recourse to, uh, you know, holding power accountable um, when our very democracy is basically uh, being undermined all the time. That's the kind of uh, that's the kind of situation that creates more conspiracism, I think, and also kind of like ratchets up the stakes where people don't really respond to things unless it's like mass hysterectomies or like Louis DeJoy, like took away my mailbox, you know, mm-hmm. to stop me from voting. Yeah, right, it's right. true. <laughs> I think that also we see people um kind of drop out of the process of even criticizing the, like you said, the Afghanistan papers, because we have the rehabilitation of George W. Bush by the Democrats. Right, right. This constant, like, um, rehabilitation of these figures makes it really feel like we don't have a lot of places to go. Mm -hmm. And, And the bar keeps getting lower and lower and lower and lower. Um, for what's like scandalous. And uh, I think it just, yeah, creates a kind of political structure where people feel demoralized. They don't feel represented. Even the people involved in the anti-war movement, uh, I don't, they didn't come out en masse, like you said. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a real feeling like, what is it actually going to do? And I think, you know, on, on the local level, there maybe isn't as much of that. I do see like a lot more participation in local struggles, Mm -hmm. but I think at a broad level, it's just hard for people to figure out where is my power. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like uh, during and after the Trump era, there were kind of more liberal and left wing conspiracy theories than there were before? Because um, the reason why I wanted to cover like the instances that I brought up is because, I'm, you know, you can always find conspiracy theories across the political aisle, like no matter what time period you're in. But the the reason why I focused on this particular set of conspiracy theories is because they got mainstream traction. Like you had mainstream mm-hmm. outlets like reporting like mass hysterectomies at this ICE detention facility, you know. So I don't know. Do, do you feel like- I mean, that part of that just seems like irresponsible journalism. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> like, look into it. Look into like why there are pallets of mailboxes. Um, right. <laughs> but yeah, I do think so. I think there's a couple things going on there that are happening on both sides. And one is just like a frenzied, insane media climate mm-hmm. where somebody makes a viral tweet about a mailbox and then you are like, this is the story and mm-hmm. your deadline is 12 hours. It's yeah. just like, and that comes from, um, you know, regulations that the FC, FEC, is that mm-hmm. right? Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that they, yeah, that they kind of took away in the 90s mm-hmm. under Clinton and also a monopolized media in the mm-hmm. U.S. Yeah. where you have a couple of firms that own a bunch of different places that are just 
churning out views. And like you said, local media is getting degraded or it's disappearing. So it's a lot harder to be like, my neighbor is a lizard person, you know, (laughs) like that, that's not a thing people usually think they might be like, my neighbor, you know, makes bad smelling food, and I don't like their dog. But you're not going to get the same traction when you have something that's local, it's grounded in context, you're engaging with it, you're interacting with it. As more of our public life degrades, Mm -hmm. as more of our local life degrades, it is much, much easier for these things to just fill out an imaginary kind of world where there's really no way of checking the information, but it feels intuitive and it has a sincere fiction Mm -hmm. of trying to explain some of your oppression. This actually, uh, it reminds me of something that Corey Robin wrote a few years ago. He called this phenomenon the Historovox, and he was basically talking about this uh, like economy of hot takes where you'll have some sort of breaking news or you'll have some sort of like news item, and then all of these opinion writers, um, and I feel comfortable criticizing this group because I myself worked as one for, for a little bit, as you guys might know, um, but you basically, as you were saying, you have this like pressure cooker scenario where you have all of these opinion writers um, you know, investigative reporting is basically dead now because, you know, local papers don't exist. And, you know, it's much more economic for publications to like churn out a bunch of hot takes than it is obviously with a lot of freelancers with a lot of freelancers or like underpaid staff writers than it is to, you know, uh, you know, thoroughly investigate or like send out beat reporters or whatever. Um, So that's all to say that you, you have a pressure cooker scenario in which, you know, if you're a writer and I've been in the scenario, you have to file, you know, so you see what the news that's coming in is, and then you have to find some way to comment on it and make it like snappy and exciting. So people will click on your article instead of somebody else's article. And so what Corey Robin pointed out is, because you have this pressure cooker scenario, you also have a lot of opinion writers who are now looking to get quotes from experts like academics and scholars to talk about, to kind of contextualize the news, right? So he was saying this thing, this thing happens where instead of people reporting on the news, you just have everybody like Vox, which is where he gets that name, contextualizing the news. And that actually mm. leads, it, it sounds like you're getting more information, but it actually leads to disinformation sometimes. So like one example is like, Okay, so like take the story, take the, you know, story that we talked about, about the like supposed ice mass hysterectomies. That, that wasn't true, of course, this allegation came out, but then all of a sudden you had these opinion writers who like swarmed in to talk about it. And it was like, now I'm talking to all of these scholars who, you know, research the history of forced sterilization in America. That history is very real, but like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, when you yeah. jumble the two things together, then then somehow, I mean, that's how the story happens, or that's how it this muddles. Happens. Yeah, it, yeah, it it muddles everything together, and then it allows people who maybe are bad actors to be like, "Hey, listen, ICE wasn't doing that," and also like, you know, forced sterilizations in American mental institutions was also like not a big deal or not really a thing. You know, it <laughs> it muddles together the history and this um, kind of hot take moment Mm -hmm. and creates a lot of attention. And then the correction doesn't really get as much. Um, Yeah, it's a troubling trend. But again, one that's revealed through like really just taking a look at the structure of news companies. Like Mm -hmm. what is their bottom line? What is it that they're trying to do? Maybe they're actually not even trying to stoke a conspiracy necessarily. I like, like, I'm almost sure that they're not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
All right. Well, well on that note. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know you've got a lot to say about the opioid crisis. And then I think we're going to bring Megan Day in to um, obviously talk talk with us about her articles. Um, but also, I would love to have her weigh in on, on uh, what you present on. So take it away. Thanks, Jen. So I want to talk about the grim milestone that America has reached, um, which is that between April 2020 and April 2021, 100,000 people have died from drug overdoses, over 100,000 people. And this figure should be startling, but it's hard to be surprised. The pandemic has exaggerated longstanding dynamics in the U.S., including those that fueled the opioid crisis. There are many reasons for this crisis, and they have been explored quite competently across the mainstream media. But one thing that often goes unanswered is why this crisis is worse than the U.S. than in any other OECD nation. Why do we have the crisis that we have in America? What goes unmentioned is that America's for-profit healthcare system, weak regulations, and permissive lobbying make the U.S. the perfect market for illegal and illegal drug dealers alike. American capitalism created the conditions for these deaths. The Sacklers and countless others who profited off of this system simply found the most favorable market for their product, but it didn't have to be this way. Let's start with our for-profit healthcare system. In order for insurance companies to make the money they need in, uh, from, uh, sorry, I'm lost in my notes. In order for insurance companies to make money, they need to earn more in premiums than they pay for in medical services. The math is very simple. One way companies ensure this is to have a list of acceptable medications that don't need prior approval. These are medicines a doctor can prescribe from a list provided by the insurance company, knowing they will be completely covered. In 2017, ProPublica found that insurance companies, including Medicare, limited access to more expensive but less addictive pain medications while making cheaper generic opioids easier to prescribe. Quote, ProPublica and the Times analyzed Medicare prescription drug plans covering 35.7 million people in the second quarter of this year. Only one third of the people covered, for example, had any access to Butrans, a pain-killing skin patch that contains a less risky opioid, buprenorphine. And every drug plan that covered lidocaine patches which are not addictive but cost more than other generic pain drugs, required that patients get prior approval from the insurer for them. Moreover, we found that many plans make it easier to get opioids than medications to treat addiction like Suboxone. Drug plans covering 33.6 million people include Suboxone, but two-thirds require prior authorization. And even if they do approve coverage, some insurance companies have set high out-of-pocket costs for Suboxone, rendering it unaffordable for many addicts, a number of pharmacists and doctors say. This is not unique to Medicare. ProPublica found that every insurance company forced patients and doctors to use cheaper, riskier treatments because it's better for their bottom line. Millions of people suffering from pain could benefit from less addictive medications or alternatives like physical therapy, but insurance companies continued to direct people to riskier, cheaper alternatives that could lead to long-term addiction and devastating consequences. Similarly, treating addiction is expensive and insurance companies make it hard to access that care so they aren't burdened with the cost. 
but states, rather than require that addiction treatment or opioid alternatives are fully covered by insurance, are appealing to the insurance companies directly to change these practices. 37 state attorney generals wrote an insurance company trade group in 2017, asking them to alter their policies so that more costly but safer treatments were covered. Not surprisingly, the companies did not do as they were asked. In 2017, Joe Manchin, notorious for his objections to the Biden infrastructure plan, penned a letter to the CEO of United Healthcare, urging them to alter their policies to make it easier for patients to get less addictive pain medication and affordable substance abuse treatment. Quote, I ask you to reduce or eliminate the barriers that your beneficiaries face to access non-opioid pain medications and physical therapy for pain management. Just as importantly, I urge you to ensure that every beneficiary that you serve that needs substance use disorder treatment, including behavioral health counseling, is able to afford it. Now, this has long been a concern for Manchin. Here he is in 2015 at a town hall discussing the opioid crisis. To Brooke County now, where community leaders were joined by Senator Joe Manchin in an effort to tackle West Virginia's drug epidemic. Prescription drug abuse was the center at today's town hall meeting hosted by Senator Manchin. He discussed ways to stop this growing problem. That starts with pharmaceuticals putting out drugs we don't need, FDA approving drugs on the market that shouldn't be approved, and doctors dispensing more than what needs to be dispensed. No matter how bad... While there is no one specific cure, Senator Manchin also said the way addicts are treated needs to change in order to see an improvement. After Manchin's 2017 letter, Anthem, another insurance giant, issued a statement in response. They said they shared the senator's concerns and were working to address the issue, but noted that some opioid alternatives cost between $350 and $1,500 per prescription. And here's where the rubber really meets the road with this issue. Manchin is probably genuinely concerned about the opioid crisis. He has been advocating for better care and treatment for years and continues to do so. West Virginia has one of the highest rates of opioid deaths in the country, and it's no doubt a huge concern among his constituents. But the math is simple. Insurance companies do not want to spend money on more expensive drugs while cheaper alternatives are available. And Manchin, for all his talk, doesn't want to lower drug prices and refuses to take on the pharmaceutical industry. He has blocked legislation to expand Medicare, which would allow more people to receive addiction treatment. And he's blocked legislation that would drive down the cost of prescription drugs. Lowering the price of opioid alternatives and drugs that are essential to treating addiction would change the arithmetic insurance companies are using and give people access to safer pain treatments. But Manchin and others refuse to alter the rules of the game. Instead, they have asked insurance companies and drug companies to volunteer to lose hundreds of millions in revenue out of the goodness of their hearts. This weakness isn't unique to Joe. The U.S. is the most profitable market for drug companies. The Sacklers knew this, and so do other manufacturers. They are literally banking on the permissiveness of U.S. law and weak political will to line their pockets. Um, drug prices in the United States are much higher than anywhere else in the world. And the, the main contributors to that are the uh, U.S. drug marketplace, which allows drug companies to charge whatever the market will bear. And then uh, in many respects, uh, places limitations on payers' abilities to try to negotiate uh, lower drug prices. 
Drug companies stand to make more money here than in any other country. It is the perfect place to create a drug crisis. But it's not just the market conditions that make the U.S. appealing for drug companies. It's coupled with a permissive legal system that allows for drug companies to directly advertise to doctors and patients, something that is illegal in other countries, and exploit a revolving door of lobbyists and corporate-friendly politicians and push out unfriendly legislation with their disproportionate influence on our political system. The U.S. is exceptional in the ability for drug companies to direct to use direct-to-consumer advertising. Here's a quote from the Harvard Health blog, quote, Almost every country in the world bans DTC ads for health products like medications and procedures. Years ago in the U.S., drug ads were, directly pri- were directed primarily at doctors. But in 1997, the FDA eased restrictions to allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise directly to consumers. With restraints lifted, spending on prescription drugs soared to more than $6 billion a year and rising. Do the ads work? Yes, indeed. Estimates suggest drug sales rise up by $4 for every dollar spent on advertising. At healthcare visits, up to a third of patients ask about a drug they've seen. These ads have been shown to increase the number of prescriptions written for those products. Does this actually improve patient health? That's far less clear. The Sacklers, like every other company, peddled their drugs directly to doctors and patients, creating demand for a product they deliberately misrepresented. And when a deadly product they knew was addictive started killing people en masse, the Sacklers did what countless companies before them have done. They exploited the weak consumer protections in the U.S. and ran a campaign to blame the victims. When legislation finally got made to address the crisis, they exploited a political system that favors powerful corporations over everyday people and blocked it at every turn. Here's an example from WBUR. Purdue Pharma, the maker of the addictive pain-killing drug OxyContin, believed Beacon Hill lawmakers could make or break their profits. The state attorney general's ongoing lawsuit against Purdue and the family behind it, the Sacklers, give a window into how they allegedly manipulated legislation. Attorney General Moore Healy alleges the Sacklers and Purdue bragged about killing bills and writing a law to increase sales. At that point, these kids would on this drug and they would die. That's former Senator Stephen Tolman, now president of the Massachusetts AFL-CIO. He also tried to restrict OxyContin, and his bill also went nowhere. He says Purdue had too much power. When you have a lot of money, you can buy the lobbyists and you can convince people. He recalls meetings with Purdue representatives who tried to convince him. They used to come and they'd bring all their lawyers and they'd be cute. And, oh, this is medically necessary and it stand like they were saving people's lives and the only people that were getting in trouble were those who were misusing it. All this paved the way for cheaper and even more lethal alternatives to flood the market the Sacklers carved out. But the conditions for this crisis were not made by the Sacklers. They were simply exploited by them in much the same way that every large company from Facebook to McDonald's to Philip Morris has done. This crisis was made by American neoliberalism and the degraded legal and political structures that accompany it. There are simple solutions to the opioid crisis, and there are more complex ones. The simple ones, lowering the cost of prescription drugs and opening medical care so all people have it for free, are being actively fought against by people like Joe Manchin who talk a big game about addressing the roots of this crisis but are too weak to take it on. We should be extremely clear here. 
People are dying because of the refusal of the political class to expand life-saving care. They are being left to suffer and die because politicians like Manchin are worried about an entitlement culture among regular people rather than actively addressing the corporate entitlement that led to this crisis. The entitlement that saw them pushing deadly drugs to people who had no hope of fighting back personally, politically, or legally. The more complex solutions are things the left has advocated for for a while. Broad programs that combat deaths of despair, that revitalize the social safety net, and create a society that provides hope and community rather than dreary alienation. We need to change our legal and political systems so they actually serve working people and not corporate interests. But there is a grief and a loss we will all have to live with. Lives that can't be reclaimed from capitalism. Lives the corporate class felt entitled to end on their crusade for profit and domination. That's really well put. And I think, again, goes back to what we were saying earlier about how, you know, it's... um, Again, the Sacklers are probably more culpable than like anybody else in America for generating and fueling the opioid crisis. But at the same time, if they didn't exist, somebody else would have come along and done exactly the same thing. Because the point is that it's the structures, the political and economic structures that put everybody involved into the position that they're in. Absolutely. If you looked at the U.S. as a market, right, rather than thinking, do I care if people live or die? Mm -hmm. Shelf that. Think about, is this profitable for my product or is Mm -hmm. this profitable for my bottom line? That's what they did. They Mm -hmm. used the cold logic of the market Mm -hmm. to generate sales for a product they made. Mm -hmm. They didn't think we love, you know, killing people and um, essentially burdening like local cities with horrifying, horrifying, nightmarish conditions. Mm -hmm. They thought we want to make a lot of money. And the U.S. was the perfect place to do it. And that is the same logic that many other companies are using that are also dangerous or, you know, social create social ills. Right. Um, All right. I think on that note, um, maybe let's bring Megan in now, because I know that she's been waiting Mm -hmm. and I want to get her thoughts on this. And but I also want to circle back to the health insurance stuff in a little bit. Um, But for now, we are joined by Megan Day, who is, of course, you know her as an editor and writer over at Jacobin. She's also co-author of the book Bigger Than Bernie. Um, So, Megan, you have written several articles on the opioid crisis, um, and in particular, you had one earlier this year that focused specifically on fentanyl and kind of profiled uh, two different families, I guess, grappling with the aftermath of fentanyl overdoses. Um, And I really want to start there because, you know, we were just talking about how the U.S. has passed an extremely grim milestone of, you know, over 100,000 deaths in the time span of a year. The vast majority of those have been due to fentanyl. Um, So I guess, you know, bringing you in, uh, you've been reporting on this issue for a while. um, And, you know, as as you point as you've pointed out in your articles, you have a personal connection to, you know, these stories as well. Um, So I want to ask you, was this inevitable or perhaps, you know, a more specific way of breaking it down is was there something in particular about the pandemic and the past 12 months that really precipitated the spike? I think that um, first. Well, thank you for having me on. And Ariella, that was great. That was really informative. And I thought very well put. Um, and I agreed with everything that you said. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's let's talk about the connection between COVID-19 and the spike in drug overdoses. 
in all honesty, I don't think that anybody fully understands the connection because I think that it's probably too complicated and too multifaceted. Individual reporters or investigators or public health researchers are going to latch on to particular tendrils of what is ultimately a very complicated web, I think. Um, and so people are starting to float theories about the connection between the two. First of all, it's undeniable. I mean, it's just it's undeniable that there's an explosion in overdose deaths that links up perfectly with um, the pandemic. I don't think that anybody um, who's interested in this topic believes that this would have happened were it not for the first two waves of the opioid crisis. First, the legitimate you know, prescription pharmaceutical opioid crisis fueled, of course, by the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma and, and others. Um, and then following that, the rise in um, you know, black market uh, heroin use and abuse and overdoses in the wake, which is obviously intimately connected, laying the groundwork for um, the current crisis, which is one of primarily synthetic opioids, uh, including a chief, chief among them, fentanyl. Um, so if the pandemic had happened in a vacuum where the first two waves of the opioid crisis hadn't happened, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that we'd be looking at what we're looking at now, um, but it did. And, um, and it's, I don't think we can say that there was simply a third wave coming and it's totally random that it happens to coincide with the, with the coronavirus pandemic either. Um, it's clearly been intensified. So it's basically two streams combined into this particular river that we're looking at. Um, I, when I took a stab at it in May, I wanted to focus, well, I mean, to be honest, I went into this piece that I wrote, um, not entire, I didn't really have like a thesis that I was, um, that I was trying to support. I actually just wanted to talk to two families, um, about what they had experienced. Um, and the, and it became clear to me as I was writing that piece that the major commonality between, um, these two families was that the young men in question who had uh, overdosed on fentanyl both had experienced right before um, right before they um, had overdoses, one was fatal, the other one wasn't. They had experienced ruptures in their work life. Um, both young men, Max and Axel, um, had had um, really rocky starts to being workers in the world, lots of unemployment, you know, you know, working as, at a pizza place or as a delivery driver or, you know, um, you know, informal construction labor. Um, and in both cases, they had found pretty decent jobs, um, which had helped stabilize them. Um, Axel had found a job as a, a UPS um, worker, and it was the best job that he had had. His dad uh, said as much that it sort of filled him with a lot of um, you know, a sense of um, purpose and a feeling of being being valued. Um, I think a lot of people maybe wouldn't feel that way about their UPS job, but, uh, you know, Axel had struggled with addiction and had not had a job that was that stable um, or well-paid before. Um, and uh, because of coronavirus, he was sent home from it and it precipitated a relapse, which re which resulted in an, a fatal overdose on fentanyl. Um, and, and Max's case is somewhat similar in the sense that um, he had finally found uh, a good job. He went to vocational school and he started working on on trucks as a mechanic. Um, but he was let go from from that job because he had already developed a drug habit, which was interfering with his performance. And once he was let go, was when his uh, uh, his drug use really really spiraled, um, resulting inevitably in his overdose. 
on fentanyl because fentanyl is increasingly in the drug supply. This is in Providence, Rhode Island. So Max's story actually happens a little bit earlier than the coronavirus crisis because fentanyl has been really bad in some communities on the East Coast for a while. It's making its way to the West Coast now. Um, in, in bigger numbers than we've seen before, but in places like Providence, it's been around for a minute. So the commonality that I saw there that I thought maybe held some explanatory power for understanding why overdose deaths have really exploded during the pandemic is that when you have large numbers of people who are alienated from their work, who are socially isolated from each other, and when you have communities um, that are pretty threadbare, um, when people don't necessarily know why they're alive, uh, to put it kind of grimly, um, mm -hmm. and are really kind of holding on to whatever's available, and then you have a massive disruption that takes away what people are holding on to, you're going to see people um, sink into patterns that are really dangerous. And um, maybe perhaps that's always been true. I think that if you look back in history at, you know, like the coincidence of like mass unemployment, and alcoholism, we could argue that's always been true. But when you add on top of that, um, a synthetic opioid that is deadly, um, being completely unregulated uh, in the black market, um, being dosed out in doses that can easily kill a person and often do, then you're going to see um, a crisis like the one that we have on our hands right now. So that was the that was the aspect that I wanted to highlight simply because it seemed obvious to me from talking to these two families that that was the commonality. I should say, in case people haven't read my article, Fentanyl is the Genie That Won't Go Back in the Bottle, which I wrote in May, um, I should say that um, the reason why I wanted to write this is because I met um, two dads, essentially, and they're both in the same band. They're both in like a folk rock band called Consuelo's Revenge in Providence, and both of their sons overdose on fentanyl. Their sons did not know each other and did not run in the same social circles. Um, and I managed to speak to both of the dads and it sort of really drove home. That coincidence, it's really not a coincidence. It's evidence mm -hmm. of the, the extensiveness of the problem. Um, and I should say also very sad news has come in the last week, which is that one of the main sort of like structuring um, devices of the piece is that one of these young men lived and the other one died. Um, but in the last week, the young man who I interviewed for the piece, Max, who survived his fentanyl overdose, has died of a fentanyl overdose. So now both of the young men that I profiled in this article have wow. died of a fentanyl overdose. Um, and, you know, Max, like I said, his original fentanyl overdose that prompted this article happened prior to the pandemic. But um, sadly, his fatal overdose has occurred squarely uh, during the pandemic. So he sort of joins very unfortunately and, and tragically um, he joins that um, that large, massive statistic that's the mm -hmm. reason for us coming together and talking today. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awful, awful to hear. I'm so sorry about that. Um, I think you're right to point out that the uh, employment opportunities that they got really provided a structure, a sense of meaning. They can create a sense of community. And I wanted you to kind of go into that because I, I see it as twofold. Um, you talked about Axel getting an opioid treatment through his job. And I think that it's not emphasized enough, you know, writ large that we really have barriers to care. And most of them are employment based. And so if you are an employed person, you receive, you know, a litany of benefits that include paid leave, holidays, access to types of medical care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And many times, you know, people are also um, being injured on the job. And so their job is kind of providing them with this sort of back and forth in and out of um, medical procedures and so forth. But the other part is social and um, more sort of centered in self-esteem and and self-valuation, feeling as though you're important to others and that other people care about you because you matter to them. Um, And it seems like the story of Axel and Max is kind of a perfect encapsulation of both of those sides. Can you talk about how they inform each other and how they did when you were speaking with them? Yeah, um, I think that's a really good way to put it. And in fact, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I mean, I think that um, in an ideal world, uh, we wouldn't, people wouldn't work so much because we would simply allocate work differently on the basis of social need, on the basis of problems that we would like to have solved um, in our society. And that's how we would decide who works on what instead of just leaving it up to the market and everybody has to hope that they find work in order to like, you know, afford their the, the means of their own um, survival. Um, so in a, in a grand sense, I think that socialists should be like skeptical of um, the idea that um, work should be too central to human identity um, necessarily. But but in the meantime, the, the truth of the matter is that like the world appears to many people to be coming out of the seams and things that were solid, uh, things that in previous times have been major sources of identity and self-esteem and meaning um, have begun to fray at the seams quite rapidly. And work does is can be very degrading and very dehumanizing and um, and very alienating in in many ways. But it's kind of there's a contradiction there. I mean, work can also is also in, for many people it's the main thing that keeps them going. It's not just a way for them to afford to put food on the table. I mean, we have to be honest about the fact that for many people, um, it, what's the quote? The worst, uh, you know, the wor- the the only thing worse than being exploited by your boss is not being exploited. Mm-hmm. by your boss mm-hmm. right um and for many people I, I think who've had you know um traumatic experiences trying to navigate life under capitalism as i think both max and axel did in their early 20s as people who either barely went to college or didn't go to college at all and didn't really entirely know what they were doing which is the majority which is the majority of people's experience in the united states after mm-hmm. they graduate high school um it finding decent jobs that they could show up for and do a good job at and talk to people on the job and get a kind of like pat on the back and a paycheck was um, tethering them to reality and giving them a reason to not chase that high, essentially. I mean, I have in the in the piece, I have a quote from Max. I'll scroll down um, and find it real quick. He says, and this is this is sad to read out loud knowing that Max has died. Uh, just in the last, I, I don't think it's been a week actually since Max died, mm-hmm. maybe about a week. He said, I'm not the most po- confident person is what he told me when I interviewed him, but being high made me more confident. Simple as that. He just like being high made him more confident. Well, also working at his job made him more confident, like working as a mechanic on trucks made him more confident. But when he lost that job, obviously getting high was like the only available substitute. So I think we have to understand that it's not, there are psychological factors here. Um, It's not just that people are getting physically addicted, though that is true. It's that that physical addiction is compounded with uh, an inclination toward um, 
the alleviation of psychic pain in a society mm -hmm. that um, is, you know, in many places in the country, rapidly deindustrializing um, in a society where um, opportunities for career advancement and um, personal um, like real self-realization through your job is like disappearing for, for a lot of people and where, um, you know, non-work related things that give you meaning, like, you know, the ability to like have a wonderful community and a family and so on are, are not available to people. Um, so we have psychological and physical reasons for mass addiction and underlying all of that, I would say, or precisely, naturally, I would say this, are material reasons. Like mm -hmm. the, the reasons why mm -hmm. there's mass deindustrialization in certain places in the country is because the companies that have traditionally employed people there are searching for, for new places, often outside of the country, to find labor that is cheaper so they can maximize their profits. At the same time, it's like a vice being squeezed from both mm -hmm. sides. At the same time, that as Ariella said, you have companies that are actually seeking to prey on and exploit those same communities by pumping them full of drugs that will fill the hole in their lives, whether that's like, you know, healing their, make, making the physical pain go away or making the psychic pain go away. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to follow up on that by now coming, coming back to Purdue Pharma, right? The arch villain of the opioid crisis. Um, so, you know, uh, over the last year, we've seen quite a few actually like legal actions and settlements with different um, opioid manufacturers uh, just in September. Um, so, so Purdue Pharma basically declared bankruptcy. And then just in September, I believe a bankruptcy court dissolved the company and, you know, forced them to negotiate a settlement, which was basically a one-time payout where they would, you know, give some cash to sort of distribute and compensate among the families and people who had been affected by the opioid crisis. So on the one hand, you know, it's like, well, I guess that's better than nothing. They're not completely off the hook. On the other hand, you know, part of the deal was that they're now shielded from further litigation. And of course, they're still rich. So, you know, I... Was it a huge win? Debatable. And then the other thing is, you know, as, as we've just been talking about, the opioid crisis has uh, evolved so much to the point where it's now a fentanyl crisis that in a way the Sacklers like almost seem obsolete. Like I said this earlier to Ariella okay. and like, you know, to be clear, like I still think that, you know, the state should seize their fortune and they should be banished from public life, you know, but at the same time, like, I guess the question for both of you actually is like, where do we go after the Sacklers? Uh, could I answer that real quick with, with reference to an article that I did not write, but I edited because that's what I'm doing now for Jacobin for the most part. Um, there's an there's an article that I edited by Ryan Zitgraf. Uh, it was published just earlier this month. It's called The Opioid Crisis Hasn't Gone Away. It's Just Gone Underground that takes mm -hmm. up this exact question. I think that that's a very good point. And I think people should think about it because I think the left... We've, it's almost like we're playing catch up and we're just now getting our talking points together on the Sacklers. And the truth of the matter is that we've moved on to the third wave of the, I mean, that's that's the supposedly the first wave of the opioid crisis. We're just now figuring out how the first and second wave fit together, which is the you know legal pharmaceutical opioid crisis and like the street heroin crisis. And we need mm -hmm. to be like catching up to the fentanyl crisis now. Um, easier said than done. I don't think the left is great on like drug policy stuff, self extremely included. I feel like I'm always playing catch up with this, but it's worth going and reading Ryan Zitgraf's uh, piece, which is a review of a book by Sam Quinones called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, which just came out. Um, Sam Quinones is the author of Dreamland, The True Tale mm -hmm. of America's Opiate Epidemic, which was a book that he was shopping around prior to 2015 and nobody would 
publish apparently because people didn't understand that this was like a real thing that people were going to want to talk about. Um, this article is, is good for a variety of reasons. I'll let you guys read it and form your own conclusions, but I do want to highlight one aspect of it, which is Ryan's, I think, um, really uh, insightful observation that essentially the um, capitalism is still driving uh, the opioid crisis in the United States. It's just that instead of the the big capitalists right now, the major driver of the opioid crisis, in particular of um, overdose deaths, is actually the petty bourgeoisie, the black market petty bourgeoisie, and not the grand capitalists. It's it's kind of moved mm-hmm. into the underground. Um, and you know your problem right now. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, people like the Sackler. I mean, Ariel did a great job explaining why there's still a problem emanating from the actual legitimate grand bourgeoisie of this country. It's just that they've been joined by um, black market petty bourgeois drug dealers in pumping mm-hmm. poison. Um, and, and the actions of the former have actually created a lot of space for the actions of the latter to to like have you know bigger bang for their buck essentially um Mm -hmm. and so this problem just keeps compounding and compounding and capitalism is at the root of all of it but it is actually quite interesting in in my view that um whereas you used to have you know people in suits with you know uh, private jets and the highest paid lawyers in the land you now they're joined essentially and continuing to create this problem on a regular basis by, um, you know, just you're like, I'm not talking about like, like low level street drug dealers. These are not the people that I'm pinning this on, but mm-hmm. like I, you know, they're, they're being joined by, by essentially it's cartel um, leaders. Uh, yeah. It's cartel leaders. They're cartel leaders. They're on, they're entrepreneurs. Those people are capitalists. And, yeah. Yes, yeah. they are. And actually I want to just like, <laughs> as, as an aside, while we're talking about this, I don't know if this bothers you, but the kind of like ethos sometimes on the left of like, you know, like the like the anti-state, anti-authoritarian ethos sometimes leads to a logical conclusion that like to do crime is somehow like a big fuck you to the man. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. actually, if you look at the literal structure of cartels, they are exploitative capitalist enterprises. They're just not legally regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, we're not on, that's not cool. They're not like giving the fuck you to the cops or whatever. It's like <laughs> right, they're yeah. doing poisonous capitalism, just like the Sacklers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so that is, uh, and and in, and in many cases, I mean, the, you've also got your sort of, you've got like kind of like rise and grind hustle culture in the black market economy yeah. as well. You've got a lot of like petty bourgeois mm-hmm. entrepreneurs who are like trying to find a business way. Business is a business. You're really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not like escaping into like a nicer, friendlier kind of like business world. These people are also capitalists and they're operating on a global level often and they're moving product and they're trying to also create demand for it. So they're lacing every possible drug with fentanyl because you get a repeat consumer instead of having a one-time consumer. A lot of the information that I got about this is from Sam Quinones's book. And I love the article that you edited and that you were citing earlier. It's a, it's a great review of some of his work, but he also is an anti-capitalist and he's like, these issues, you know, it's a different arithmetic to create a product that gets people biologically hooked on that product. And it it is monstrous it's monstrous like they really really don't care on either side legal or illegal and you're not talking at, at this moment about like a small time person who's like i'm going to sell some of my extra pills to afford other prescriptions which is a story that i read when i was researching my piece 
you're talking about people who are operating on a massive level who are really essentially running a business enterprise that's just not sanctioned by the state. Um, I also think that there's this kind of under-discussed, um, I don't know, so like, I, I like the um, the line of logic that comes out of thinking about deaths of despair. And uh, there's this rat study where they, I don't know, it's kind of an infamous rat study where they give rats drugs. And the rats that are like in a horrible, horrible cage are like, no, I'm only doing drugs now. <laughs> like they, they refuse food, you know, they don't care. They get hooked. The rats that are, in a rat paradise where they have lovely different types of foods, things that rats love, different textures, stuff to gnaw on, sexual partners, a social life. Those rats don't want the drugs. And I think that, you know, that may be an oversimplification of some of the logic behind this, but really like when you talk about pain, people are treating mental and emotional and physical pain. We have a country of people who have untreated medical conditions, who die from untreated medical conditions, who turn to the internet and friends and family for treatment and care because they can't get it from medical experts. And that creates a completely different landscape, right? When you're then going in and saying, hey, I've got this miracle product and it's cheap and you can get it without prior authorization and there's no hoops to jump through. And then we also have a nation of people who can't just walk in and have free treatment like at the time of service. So you can go into a clinic with Medicaid and you have to wait and get prior approval for addiction treatment. But you have a state that will absolutely wreck your life, right, if you slip up and get part of the criminal system. And so beyond it just being unfair and like, you know, wrong, morally wrong, it also changes the stakes of interaction and compounds already existing issues of social anxiety and um, a feeling of precarity, so not only do you have the kind of just regular kind of material unfairness, you also have this psychological drive where people's lives are unstable, unfair, and they're like, anything can be taken from me at a moment's notice, economically, my family. If I get caught up in the wheels of the state, I may disappear. I may not see my kids again. When I was pregnant, I was looking at information about cesareans and I found a mommy blog that was like, if you get a cesarean, then you can't um, essentially come pos- come up positive on a drug test for opioids because they give them to you during the surgery. And it was these women talking about how they felt like this was a way for them to keep their kids because they could use the cesarean to mask a drug addiction that they couldn't get treated. Like that's where we are, you know, Wow. it is, it is extremely grim and that creates a kind of ecosystem and a mood. I think you said this in one of your pieces, yeah. Megan, that you quoted somebody who was like, it casts a shadow over yeah. this entire town. How, how does a person, you know, have hope or want to be engaged when they feel like that's their world? I want to talk about the mood a little bit before we move on to, I mean, yeah, this please. is probably the, the least, the least perhaps like a uh, strictly materialist uh, thing that I'm going to offer you. 
um, today, but like, I don't know how you guys feel. I don't know how old you guys are. I'm 33. So that means that when I was in a high school, I don't know, maybe you guys were in the same high school at the same time as me. I feel like mm-hmm. the party we culture was like, <laughs> we were okay. I, I feel like the party culture was like red solo cups and like Andrew WK party hard. And it was like, really <laughs> hype. like it was that, what a throwback. That was, what it, that's what it meant to like get fucked up. Like teenagers have been getting fucked up forever, but like that's what it felt like. That's what it was. That was the, the high that you were chasing was essentially like um, a very, very stupid communal form of ecstasy. Um, and I actually think that the long, the long drawn out three waves of the opioid crisis have had a major impact beyond just, a, you know, intentional opioid or opiate users i feel mm-hmm. personally like what well, i can i can observe that in the entire culture it i think that there's some causality here that um to be a party person is to be chasing oblivion like to be chasing a mm. sort of like dark numbness you can hear it in the music you can see it in the party drugs that are popular um and you know i don't know maybe there's a chicken and egg thing and we can get into like all of the causality but personally i, I do perceive that and i have some personal experience with this which is that my, my brother who was was 17 at the time overdosed um last year late last year um he's disabled now um both cognitively and physically um permanently most likely um and one of the substances that he it was a multi-substance overdose and one of them was an opioid, but another was a benzo and another was just alcohol. And, you know, he wasn't like an opioid user. He was a 17 year old kid who went to parties. And that's the kind of thing that 17 year old kids who go to parties do now. And I do feel like that's an after effect of mm-hmm. the general, like general cultural changes that have, that have occurred in the context of the broader opioid crisis. So I feel like, you know, I have some personal experience with that. Um, which is actually what drove me to write this story about um, the two young men to begin with, actually, because the brain injury that my brother got from his overdose is actually quite um, common in people who survive overdoses. Um, and Max had the same brain injury. So I met his dad on a Facebook mm. group for family members who are mm. um, dealing with this. And this Facebook group is full of people who are loved ones of survivors of, ov- of overdoses who have brain injuries, which is actually something that you don't hear about very often. I, I think you're gonna be hearing about it more because I think that mm-hmm. um, fentanyl um, uh, in particular uh, leads to this kind of brain injury if it doesn't kill you pretty often. Um, I had not really heard of it, actually. Frankly, I hadn't heard of that happen until it happened to someone in my family. Um, mm-hmm. But my, my, my point is that like, I, I think that there are reverberations beyond people who know that they're doing drugs that might contain, that either are opiate or opioid or that they might contain synthetic opioids there are reverberations throughout our entire culture um i think that it's very closely implicated to a kind of depressive mood in the culture which i perceive um, Mm -hmm. punctuated by like moments of mania um sometimes Mm -hmm. like when we're all rallying to like get bernie elected sometimes frightening (laughs) mania like you know the various um visions of like whatever like um like QAnon and and you know uh, mm-hmm. January 6th or whatever um, but like you know it does feel like a it feels like a manic depressive moment to me and mm-hmm. I think that um, the uh, more depressive than manic punctuated sporadically by manias but the the depressive atmosphere feels very linked to the opioid crisis to me and it has reverberations well beyond people who know that they are in uh, the line of fire for mm-hmm. uh, something like a fentanyl overdose 
Absolutely. I'm so sorry to hear about that too, Megan. And I think you're right that we're going to hear about that more because, um, you know, when we think about capitalism, we rarely think of how it acts on the body, right? It, When you are a laborer, your labor acts on your body, right? Um, When you are a consumer under capitalism, those things act on your body and they have long-term effects that we then manage socially. And managing that under capitalism is also like incredibly fraught and difficult. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, the, um, what you what you just brought up about, you know, people who survive overdoses and then are disabled or, you know, live with the after effects. That's something that obviously isn't captured even in the horrifying statistic of 100,000 deaths over a year. And, you know, to go back to what Ariella brought up, uh, you know, during your segment, Ariella, like that's also something that our incredibly broken for-profit healthcare system is completely unequipped to deal with. Tell me about it. I mean, you guys, I, I, I think that you're lucky to not see the the guts of this Facebook group that I'm in. Um, yeah. But I think there's a larger story here about the the extended horrors. If your loved one doesn't die of an overdose and your loved one instead mm-hmm. survives an overdose, but is not, you know, perfectly healthy afterwards, which is common. Um, I think that um, then you have to deal with what with the in, insane healthcare system. Um, and what my parents, my parents, my family has had to deal with it. It's been insane, even though my family is like well resourced enough to navigate it better than most people. Um, because it's just insane. And then people who don't have any resources. It's like, well, shit out of luck. Like you can put your loved one mm-hmm. in a long term care home, uh, or you can take them home and take care of them yourself mm-hmm. for the rest of their natural life or yours. Whatever ends first. It's just, it's completely range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, there are barriers to people getting these public services purposefully, right? Um, and there are barriers to people getting the service that their insurance company should be guaranteeing them because they're paying their premiums. But then the broader narrative is like, be a good, responsible individual and just like get the thing you need from this system that's hell bent on stopping you. So in the stories that I read for my piece, you'd have people who want to get treatment. I, for my job, like administrate, um, I don't know, all manner of like boring, awful bureaucratic things like the healthcare plan or the 401k or whatever, because I do accounting. So I know how awful and, and like shitty <laughs> this stuff is because I do it all the time. But when it's my own like health or my children's health, the stakes are crazy. You know, being, being in a position where you are desperate And then being told, like, figure out if you need prior approval, then call the hospital and see what doctor has your chart, then figure out if that doctor can talk directly to the insurance company, which you can't get in touch with because you've been on hold for two hours. It's like asking somebody to complete a like like you should be a metal triathlete. (laughs) <laughs> and then I'll approve your disability. Right. Like, it is such a huge, insane ask on purpose. And I think you're absolutely right. For every lethal overdose, there are non-lethal overdoses. There are people who are crushed by grief from witnessing just horrific things who will have, you know, a long-term mental 
um, illness or post-traumatic stress disorder that they need treated. And for us to continue to sit back and think that like individuals should be shouldering this and handling it on their own and not thinking that it will compound the very same dynamic, it is just unbelievable. And I think you're right. Like the left needs to catch up here. This is a massive, massive health crisis. And we need to be able to say like, we have a materialist position, but we also have a moral position. We're not going to be the people who sit back and, you know, stay silent throughout of it, throughout all of this. I, I want to quickly read a line from one of your articles, Megan, because I think that that it, that kind of it kind of pulls everything together what we've been talking about so far. So you write in your article, whatever else our drug policy consists of, it won't be sufficient to end the drug epidemic until we start investing in better life options for people who feel that they have few and work to give a sense of direction and purpose to people who have none. Um, Clearly, drug policy has to be about much more than just the drugs themselves, right? I mean, I feel like that's what we've been kind of dancing around. And um, to go back to something you said earlier, Megan, like, I, I, I agree, the left isn't good at talking about drug policy. Like, I feel like our go-to is harm reduction and decriminalization and the war on drugs. And like, obviously, like, I broadly support all of those things. But in light of how massive the opioid crisis is, has been, and will continue to be, it just seems so insufficient. So this is kind of like the dry question, but... And and I'm putting it to both of you, but like, like, where do you think the left goes in terms of drug policy from here? Well, I mean, I, I sort of implicating myself here in not being entirely well prepared. I've written, I, you know, I've written, I don't know how many articles for Jacobin, but I have to admit that um, despite having written several articles about drug policy, that's a really small minority of the articles that I've written for Jacobin. It's something that I've taken more of an interest in lately for personal reasons and also for political reasons, because it's becoming clear to me that this is an issue that is not a sideshow issue and that the left is not really good. It doesn't really have answers. On the, on the one hand, I feel like um, the thing that you quoted that I said is um, a cop out because it's like, well, maybe we should just make like a nicer society, and then maybe people won't be designed <laughs> well, to like be inclined. I was going to say the reason the reason why that line Not appealed to me, yeah, <laughs> the reason why that line appealed to me is because it's like classic Jacobin, right? Like you have a yeah. problem, social democracy. <laughs> but see, that's what I'm saying. It's like which, on the one hand, it's is, a cop out, and on the other yeah. hand, it's the it is the indispensable missing ingredient. Whenever yeah. you like, it's the miss. It is it is the actual. It's like kind of feels like a cop out because it's asking for us to like have a much bigger vision to solve the problem, which feels like we're getting away from the like, okay, well, what do we do right now, considering that we're in a crisis? At the same time, I don't see how we get out of our cyclical crises. Um, like I said, there's already been now we're in the third wave of opioid um, epidemic in the United States. I mean, who knows how many more are coming? Who knows what monstrous mm -hmm. new inventions are lurking around the corner? I mean, we honestly have no idea. And if we think that this is the last of it, I think that's incredibly naive. There's no reason to think that this is the last of it. Like the art, the title of the article that I wrote is fentanyl is the genie that won't go back in the bottle. Certainly this is a technological innovation. That's what this is. This is a technolo technological innovation that is changing and shaping the world that we need to figure out how to live in relation to. Um, and we need a big vision to combat that. Like, I actually do think that the left should get better on some of the specifics of drug policy. And I actually totally hold myself like I think I need to be held like responsible for learning about, you know, what what are the precise like um, platform bullet point issues that we want to um, accomplish. But I, don't, I think we all know that that's just that's just like a bandaid on a bleeding head wound until we actually mm -hmm. like try to build something like a decent halfway decent borderline social democracy in the United States. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, something that you you basically pointed out, Ariella, is that Medicare for all would go a long way, you know. And again, that's something that's much easier said than done. I mean, yeah, but we need to triage this problem. Like mm-hmm. every single day, people are dying, and we can find ways to stop some of that. Like there are concrete things that we can do to stop some of that. If addiction treatment was free and you could just walk in and say, listen, I need support and have it be there long term, that would change so many things. The fact that employment is a barrier to treatment means that anybody who is unemployed is already facing an additional barrier. The fact that even if you are employed, insurance companies can decide what they'll cover and how they'll cover treatment. The fact that you can't take paid time off to be treated for addiction issues. All of this is compounding the lack of resources that people are facing and making it more difficult for them to turn away or ask for help. I think that we also kind of take for granted that um, even though we want big, big changes, we can't do smaller changes like on the ground. So in my community, um, There's a big fight right now to reopen a treatment center because it was closed during coronavirus. They said for health reasons, um, and it was never reopened because they wanted to save that money and put it to something else. We have a lot of municipalities that are deeply underfunded. We're going to be seeing cities, you know, facing bankruptcy over and over and over again as a result of the pandemic, but also as a result of local tax laws and so on and so forth. And so what you get are really desperate localities, but we have more power there collectively. And we may not have the power right now politically to have universal health care, and that would go a long way, but we do have the power in our communities to say, like, listen to the nurses, listen to the doctors, listen to the people who are professionals who want to treat this crisis and give them the things that they're asking for. And right now, hospitals are being underfunded and closed. And so, you know, where I live, it's really a bipartisan issue. People on both sides of the aisle are working together to try to make sure this treatment center reopens. Um, These are the kind of small scale things that we can do. But it it has to be the place that we can start, you know, like we have to start where we have power and work to keep building it. And then when we get there, be strategic about how we use that. But it does seem like um, so broad and vast that it's it's like David and Goliath, you know, we are small on the left. Luckily, I think we can have a lot of allies, especially on this issue, because it affects so many people. Um, But we need to be really clear about what our position is and what future we're looking forward to in carving out programs and trying to change things. Yeah. Uh, That's a little plug for listen to your nurses. (laughs) Right. Always. (laughs) Always. And I, I, I also feel like in the in the post for any moment, uh, maybe people are getting a little bit tired of hearing us say like Medicare for all and good union jobs, but like Medicare for all and good union jobs. Yeah, sorry. Like, that's actually, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I'm mm-hmm. sorry if it's boring to you now or you feel that we've moved on from this, <laughs> but the answer is Medicare for all and good union jobs. In addition to all of the very mm-hmm. the specific local um, interventions that need to be made on like drug policy specifically, like Medicare for all and good union jobs. Yes. Yeah. Because we need to draw those links. They're like our programs shouldn't be towards some like speculative future where, you know, all people are represented equally and like everybody gets to hold hands on the red carpet and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Like we really need to be saying in a country where 
both political parties pander to the most bullshit talking points that don't relate to working people's lives, we need to be saying like, this is the answer. The answer is ending for-profit healthcare. It is a travesty. It, it's barbaric, it's cruel, and it's wasteful in every possible sense of the word. But it can get muddled. Like we're the ones who have to say when you're looking around your community and you're you're seeing maybe every other month a person overdosing or you're seeing a person that you loved becoming more and more precarious and desperate, we do know how to fix it. Our timeline might not be next year and it might not be in five years even, but we do know that. And it's a responsibility for us to not close our eyes to the horrors around us and to actually say like, we want a world where it's not possible anymore. Because Megan, you're right. It is a technological change. And on top of that, you have this really unfathomable power differential between normal people and what a normal person can do and fight for and like a corporate entity like the Sacklers or even a cartel. You know, we we don't have the same tools in our pocket. We don't have the same political or legal power. It's going to be a really, really long fight. But like, you know, on the left, we've got to be like, we are the ones fighting it. Completely agree. All right. Well, I think that was our last question for you, Megan. Um, Again, Megan's articles in Jacobin. uh, She has a few on the opioid crisis. Um, The one we talked about uh, in most detail today was fentanyl, the genie that won't go back into the bottle. Um, And also check out Ryan's article, uh, the one that you brought up, Mm -hmm. Megan. That article is really good. Um, So again, thank you, Megan, for joining us today. And yeah, thank you. And thank you guys so much for covering this issue. We, I think we, I think that like my final note on this is that, yeah, I agree mm-hmm. that we need to be taking more ownership over this issue. Um, even if we don't have the specifics mm-hmm. worked out and we like maybe need, like, I think we need to maybe put the cart before the horse on this and actually start taking ownership mm-hmm. first and then working backward. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. um, yeah. Because uh, that we can't just sit on the sidelines and just let the technocrats, whatever, say that they have the like wonky solutions to these issues. I mean, we have to be putting forward a, an ambitious vision because we know that's going to be necessary to actually stop the cyclical and mounting crises that, that we're facing. So I'm glad that you guys are covering this. I want us to be covering it more in Jacobin. We talked about it in our Jacobin editorial meeting last week. I think we're all on the same page here. Um, well, thank you guys. So you're for saying you don't support an algorithm that can assess <laughs> how high risk you are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, that's not the yeah. specialist solution. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really no, do hope to propose. see. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah that was the drug policy that you were gonna. <laughs> Megan Day and Andrew Yang have teamed up <laughs> to create. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Yeah, I really, really hope to see more work from you on this. The articles that you wrote really pair together the kind of compassion for the life story of a person and the institutional barriers that they're facing and how they're balancing these things. And um, really, thank you so much for sharing some of the personal details about these stories. It was really moving, but also it was extremely eye-opening. And you are absolutely right that we're ne- we're going to need more reporting on this in the future. Great. Totally agree. Thanks, y'all. Have a good rest of your evening. Megan. Bye. You too. Last thoughts on the opioid crisis? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's very overwhelming. I do think she's right. It's going to be, it's it's already been transformative in ways Mm -hmm. that I don't think have been adequately traced out. Mm -hmm. And it's going to continue to be, and it might mutate into a new kind of crisis. I think that it's going to be really hard also to 
reckon with the psychological effects of living in a community where you've lost, you know, like a hundred people. Um, These are long-term emotional and psychological issues that we also need to take very, very seriously. People's despair is a social and a political problem. Mm -hmm. And we have a moral obligation to be, you know, facing and remedying it where we can. Yeah. I absolutely agree with something you said earlier about the deaths of despair sort of framework and how useful that is. Um, We, of course, talked about, we've talked about deaths of despair on the show quite a bit, Um, you know, obviously with Jennifer Silva when she was on, but, you know, again, more recently looking at uh, how, you know, college, or I'm sorry, people without college degrees of all races at this point are basically so vulnerable to these deaths of despair and, you know, how there's just nothing comparable for people with a college degree and how that's quickly becoming a pretty stark dividing line um, in terms of health outcomes in this country. Uh, And, and again, that's just to say that like uh, the opioid crisis, as I think we've made pretty clear is not just about drug, not just about drugs and not, not even just about drug policy. It's, a much larger crisis. Um, and that's why we give these kind of like cop out answers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard because we don't have um, a language to talk about the socially created landscapes of, you know, emotional health mm-hmm, right. or or the ways in which um, communities face issues that are created and then compounded by these broader institutions. So I think one thing with deaths of despair is it can get oversimplified to be like, there are a lot of sad people. They have very little to look forward to and very little security. And then it makes them more vulnerable to drug abuse or alcoholism or mental illness. Um, But it's, it misses the thread that actually like capitalism as a system is altering our psychology and our emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's a different argument than a lot of people are sad, like if they were happier, then XYZ wouldn't happen. It's a different argument to talk about like, the fact that in more unequal societies, people have higher levels of cortisol, Mm -hmm. or people have higher levels of depression that's linked to issues with serotonin uptake. The that's a diff, very different conversation. And it might seem like, you know, a cop out to be like, if we had a happier world, people would be happier. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, but actually, again, I, yeah, there, again, there's a again, deeper thing that it's saying. Exactly. You know? Again, again, like not, not, I mean, we're Jacobins. So like, of course, we're gonna default to the like answer is social democracy. But I mean, sure. even if you even if you look <laughs> at like studies of psychology and happiness in say the Nordic states, Denmark is consistently, or I mean, it's not always Denmark, like the Nordic states take turns, but one of the Nordic states, whether it's Denmark or like Norway or Sweden or whatever, always ranks as the happiest nation on earth, like when they do Mm -hmm. these like global studies. And, you know, to some extent, these surveys or or these studies are kind of bullshit. But at the same time, like, I think that there is something there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Also, you see this when people say, I can reasonably expect that my life will get better, right? Mm -hmm. If they live in a community where they feel like that's true, or they feel like that's true about their neighbors, Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for us to reckon with the fact that like, our happiness and our physical and emotional well-being are deeply, deeply linked to 
you know, many, many millions of people all around us, Mm -hmm. like in the system that we live within. So even with health outcomes, if you live in a community where people are underinsured or uninsured, your health is worse Mm-hmm. regardless of your, your personal status. situation. Yeah. 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 And like, we really need to be facing this interdependence. We might not understand all of it, but it's certainly the case that as we see more issues, you know, in our communities locally, and also I think, you know, but in, in our state or in our country, we become affected by these things. And when we change those institutions that are creating those effects, it changes the outcomes for mm-hmm. people, but it's mm-hmm. hard kind of because it's like a simultaneous denial of like personal agency, right. but then saying like, we need to have the personal agency to create collective agency to change <laughs> our institutions. Um, and, you know, like smarter people than I have grappled with this, <laughs> I'm sure, but that's where we're at. You know, yeah. we have yeah. an unhealthy society. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. an unhealthy structure that we live in that creates that unhealthy society. And we have to be making changes wherever we can. In conclusion, as always, Medicare for all. <laughs> no, yeah, <I'm> just <laughs> we're just going to keep on saying it. Yeah. <laughs> But for um, real, guys, it would make a big difference. We could yeah. negotiate down prescription drug right, prices. Right. We could break the power that these companies have in this country. Mm-hmm. And we could make sure people get the treatment that they need and deserve and that communities are well served and their mental health needs are met. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you bringing up the kind of uh, psychological trauma of the people, not only who have experienced, um, you know, addiction and overdose, but their family members as well, again, made me think about the fact that our medical system just has no place for them, completely cannot accommodate them. I mean, even like mental health, especially, even if you have really good private insurance, it's still a pain to like try to find Mm -hmm. a mental health specialist or a psychologist. I mean, anybody who's had to try to find a therapist of any sort knows that, you know? So, yeah. I mean, it's like uh, you see these kind of technocratic interventions and they're branded as like, I'm a nice friendly app, you know, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Billionaire that's teaming up with like Prince Harry or like, you know, Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or like (laughs) the organizers of a, you know, music festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say, oh, there's this need and we're going to make it easier. No, no, actually, that doesn't make it easier. There's a need that's not being met straight out. Like this isn't a, oh, we all hate the way that our normal therapy works. It's like, this is an impossible resource to get access to. Mm-hmm. And you've created a funnel for the fact that like, you know, the state is failing to make sure that people get right. this service. Right. I mean, and since you bring up like Prince Harry and like, I don't know, the therapy apps or whatever, it just it just goes to show that like the the longer that we wait to, you know, actually have a national healthcare system, the more that you'll have more entities and parties who are invested in trying to fill the holes in that system and making money from doing so. And the harder it'll, mm-hmm. the harder it'll be to actually get that healthcare system. I mean, I'm sure nobody watching the Jacobin show like has to be told this, but again, it's just like the thing that keeps me up at <laughs> if night. If Prince you know? Harry is watching right? it, which, just like, reconsider I mean, 
Yeah. <laughs> Reconsider. <laughs> you guys have NHS. It's good. Right. It's a good right. thing. Help us. Yeah. That. <laughs> no, you're totally right. Because then they have more, you, you know, they, they're not going to give up that market share. Mm-hmm. When we talk about universal health care, we're talking about expropriating market share from companies. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And people in America have killed other people for this. Yeah. Like that's not the current business strategy, but it wasn't so long ago. Like in our interview with Paul Heidemann, it wasn't so long ago that capital had its own armies right. fighting striking workers. So, you know, when you're when you're actually getting down to like the brass tacks, which is being essentially saying like you can no longer profit off of this sector of the market, of course, of course we're gonna see a huge fight. We're gonna see it like every single way they can muster. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Prince Harry, if you're watching, please reconsider. And um, for everybody else who's watching, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone.